You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 384. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Bökwan. See ya! Hey son, hey son! Hello, Andras! No yeah, Annika today? No hello, uh, hello, hello today, hello. unfortunately. Hello, Annika? Oh, yeah, yeah Annika, no, she's not. She's otherwise engaged. Yeah, that happens. That happens. Yeah. Busy, busy, busy life. Uh, how about you? How are you? I'm also pretty busy, actually. Surprisingly busy. Supposed to be summer and vacation time, but no, not for me. Not for me. <laughs> Is it something that's not for you, or you just uh, can't find the time to do, to, to no, do it? I don't know. Things just pile up. It's just. Uh, oh. But uh, it's fine. I, I'm I'm doing well. I mean, there's um, weather is fairly good, and uh, mm-hmm. there will be um, things happening that are fun. So, <laughs> yeah. Last weekend, I finally we finally managed to find ourselves a little bit of time with my other half, and we travelled to a place in the middle of the country where where it's it's supposed to be remote. Lots of things to see still. And the weather was crappy. <laughs> so the, the one weekend that I can find for myself where okay. I could focus on nothing else but <laughs> ourselves, that's when the weather is crappy. Well, well. That's strange. Last week you talked about it going to be 38 degrees or something like that. Yeah, it started out like that. And then massive thunderstorms came in mm. uh, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. A, a big drop in the temperature. And we ended up being actually cold. <laughs> so <laughs> uh-huh. Bloody weather, can't make its mind up. Well, yeah, this is just the times and you have to stay in the room. That's that's. Yeah. Uh, lots of strange winds blowing over Europe at the moment. We have to comment a little oh, bit yeah. on the Russian situation. Yeah. And the failed Wagner uprising. I'm pronouncing it Wagner because that's the more German way of saying it. I don't know how they pronounce it in Russia. And I don't care. So, But it's very <laughs> hard to know what's actually <laughs> happening there. What we, what we do know is that Prigozhin, who is or was, question mark, the leader of these mercenaries... That is called the Wagner Group. For a long time, he has been criticizing the Russian military leadership. First of all, as I understand, the Wagner Group is illegal, even according to Russian laws. But hey, anything goes if Putin allows it. He seems to have thought it was a good idea to have them around, perhaps as a balance to the regular Russian troops. I don't know. Putin, of course, doesn't trust anybody even his own military or his generals and now he has a bloody good reason not to (laughs) well he's not making it easy to like him so let's put it that way yeah probably not yeah anyway this wagner group has played a big role in the war against ukraine such a big role that prigoshin prigoshin how would you pronounce that prigoshin prigoshin i have the same amount of idea as you do i think Something yeah. like that. He has been. He has felt comfortable criticizing the Russian military again and again out loud, and then suddenly he storms out of Ukraine, back into Russia, occupies military centers without any resistance apparently, and then he starts marching on Moscow. And we are thinking, holy shit, is this the beginning of a civil war? And maybe for half a second, people were thinking that could be a good thing if it means the end for Putin. But what we do have to remember is that Prigozhin is is mad with Russian leadership for not fighting hard enough in Ukraine. Yeah. He's not a, a potential improvement over Putin. He's probably even a worse lunatic. That's my yeah. professional assessment. Anyway, so he rushes <laughs> against Moscow. He's getting to about... How many kilometers? 200 kilometers from Moscow? Not that far. We don't know exactly because, well, who who knows what's going on. Then he suddenly gives up and agrees to step down and go to Belarus. So we are left confused, of course. We don't know enough and perhaps no one has the real full picture. So, So it's easy to start spreading all kinds of speculations as well. So I don't want to try to add to those speculations, but you wonder what's happening. Did he lose his nerve? Did he expect the regular army to join him? Or are there even more layers of conspiracies here? I see things on the internet. Maybe it was orchestrated by Putin himself all the time. 
very unlikely, uh, but we don't understand what's going on. And I'm thinking, in all of this confusion, I'm thinking maybe there is nothing to understand. I think there's a risk of us or everybody falling into the trap of thinking that everything this big must be happening according to some huge elaborate plan. But in the end, sometimes things just develop and gets out of hand and nobody is in charge. Yeah. And maybe Progoshin is crazy for real and he he's not just all there. He doesn't know what he's doing and he's doing all these crazy things and Putin is reacting well, like Putin reacts. Mm. I am sure in any case that there will be books written about this for years to come. And uh, there's still a real possibility that things get even worse. It's bad enough to have a really powerful Putin, but maybe it's even worse to have a weak Putin. Mm. That's really scary to think about. Yeah. Um, Some of the dictators that have been removed by alien forces, I mean by alien, I'm not saying extraterrestrial, but other than the local forces, we've seen that happen time and again all over the, the Middle East, for example, so and in Africa. So strong yeah. leaders could still keep up some kind of um, order in, in things. And when that is ended, all chaos yeah. is coming in. So it's really? it's an interesting thought. Funny how, how you see all the experts being puzzled by this as well. So we have here in Hungary a couple of often quoted experts on, on the Russian situation and they are scratching their heads. So yeah. <laughs> Because there is so much information, but on the other end of the scale, there's a shitload, a whole tsunami of disinformation as well. So yeah. I, I think this is the basic idea that nobody knows what the fuck is going on and that is terrible in and of itself because we have no basis we have we had nothing to stick to as reality we have no way of knowing what is real and what isn't terrible okay this is why i try to keep away from taking sides in politics occasionally i try to distance myself from political affiliations as of late since i realized that politics is full of that kind of disinformation and uh, it's so reassuring to occasionally come across something that is a technical or um, a scientific problem but uh, this is probably not the case with one of the latest news and very sad and unfortunate news that those of the titan submersible Mm -hmm. and why we need to talk about this is because it was it happened closer to canada the waters of canada close to newfoundland and it was done by an american company but several european people were on board that submersible when it imploded and uh, that is a terrible incident and it had an international coverage because it's a terrible example of bad planning and being unbelievably irresponsible in terms of giving a kind of service. It's one thing to have a submersible that you try to discover stuff with and you try to innovate, you try to use new materials. For example, that kind of fiber that that was used for the hull of the submersible. And mind you that a submersible is not a submarine. It's not self-sustaining. It's something that has to have an outside support vehicle or needs to be connected to a surface vessel as well. It Hmm. still has to withstand the same kind of forces. So physics is still physics in a submersible, the same kind of physics that is uh, exposed to Mm. that a submarine is. And uh, 3,800 meters of depth in the ocean is a shitload of pressure. And the hull has to withstand that. Otherwise, it will, as we call it, implode. And this is what most likely has happened in this case. It went too deep, it probably got a leak, and the leak resulted in the crashing of the hull. 
in fact it was days a couple of days that there was still a little bit of hope but since then the new remotely controlled submersibles that went down they found debris from the vehicle so it looks like all five people on board did actually die a terrible death Shazada Dawood a Pakistani British businessman and his son his 19 year old son was lost he was a student at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow um, Hamish Harding a British businessman and he was an amazing guy he went into space he was a holder of several Guinness World Records for example for the fastest circumnavigation of the earth and he flew into space on Blue Origins NS-21. There was a French guy, a former Navy commander, a diver and a submersible pilot, so someone who knew exactly what he was getting into, probably, Paul-Henri Nargelet. He was one of the leading experts hmm. on underwater research to the RMS Titanic. He did 37 expeditions to the wreck of Titanic previously so that is quite a team and obviously stockton rush the uh, submersible pilot and the american entrepreneur the co-founder and chief executive of ocean gate the interesting thing is that there were signs that this was probably not a good idea to take tourists down to that depth with the experimental design of a submersible that lacked every kind of inspection uh, from independent authorities which is usually something that is required from a commercially available service of that sort and uh, this was not the case and Stockton Rush dismissed all the warnings and the concerns about that unclassed, untested and unproven deep dive operation and uh, there was an expert named Rob McCullum he sent several emails to him begging him not to go on with this without the proper testing by independent authorities and independent organizations and he just dismissed them offhand eventually threatening with legal actions mm. for harassing him <laughs> about this it's one thing to be innovative it's one thing to be forward-thinking but you have to be responsible especially if you provide a service to people who don't necessarily know what they are getting into, even if they are experts in some kind of oceanic research. So it's just a lesson in how not to be an irresponsible prick while doing innovation. Um, <laughs> and we, yeah. we see that very often. I mean, alarmingly yeah. often these days. It's right? very easy to be arrogant. And just because you're very rich doesn't mean you know everything and can trust your instincts all the time. It's pretty good to have other people checking in on what you're doing. So I think yeah, that's... Yeah, and especially if a with a technical innovation, whatever yeah. you do is based on previous stuff, previously established bases and rules and technical details. It's not something you come up as a generally new thing. There are experts on all the fields, and he used experts, but apparently those experts were not on top of their game and it was allowed yeah there had been several previous dives of this submersible but it just means that the materials that were used could have tired so the materials can actually tire and when that happens it's becoming more and more dangerous to go down to that depth yeah um yeah consider the fact that physics knows its job is so <laughs> yeah all right okay let's leave these tragic stories behind a little bit and say hey yes. we're still looking forward to qed and we're going to talk about it all the time because we want everybody to go there yeah. <laughs> and we are following the preparations with great anticipation and for example we are in contact with the skeptic camp organizers they are the lovely people from skeptics in the pub online they are saying that it's not too late to apply for speaking at Skepticamp and they are looking forward to seeing more submissions. The link with instructions and details will be in the show notes. So if you think that you have a topic that you can talk about for about 
10 minutes in front of a uh, well maybe 200 people 150 people you should apply it's not as scary as it sounds very informal and relaxed and uh, lots of humor involved and uh, by the way the skeptic camp is on the friday before the actual conference so you need to get there one day early if you want to give a talk or of course if you want to listen to the skeptic camp talks as well we will be there and we hope you will be there as well yeah that's right. And speaking of places to be and talks to give, <laughs> by the time this goes out, you will have already missed it. But Skeptical Science, one of the websites that we always recommend for everyone who's looking for scientifically sound information, especially on climate science, they will uh, share the presentation after the actual conference takes place. That conference is the International Conference on Climate Justice between the 28th and 29th of July. And the person representing Skeptical Science at that conference will be Babel Winkler. Babel! <laughs> uh, from Germany, whom we interviewed on episode 313. And we do recommend you listen to that interview because uh, she said a lot of important things, especially for those who want to do something on an international level about um, uh, spreading the, the word of science and skepticism. And her talk will be on skeptical science giving facts a fighting chance against climate misinformation, because th that's what they do. They do rebuttals and they have a, a rebuttal database of climate misinformation and they are very good at pre and debunking certain myths about climate science and she'll be talking about all those resources so um, we will share the link whenever it's available yeah i think it's a very good thing so it's going to be in the past by the time this this uh, goes out but i just wanted to mention it because it's important and i want to uh, finish up with something that is also important to me it's uh, meeting skeptics all over the world wherever i i travel as a tour guide which is my day job <laughs> and in the evenings when i am usually free i wouldn't mind having a beer or two with local people in the countries and those countries and i'd like to mention that at the beginning of, of august i will be in the baltic states Mm -hmm. uh, traveling from Lithuania through Latvia all the way up to Estonia. I know that there are skeptics in those countries and I'm pretty sure that some of them do listen to our show. We know for a fact that at least a couple of them do because they contacted us. Yeah, <laughs> and, more about uh, that later, yes. Yeah, so please let us know. Send us an email to info at theesp.eu or to andras at theesp.eu you i would be more than happy to try and meet up with you and do some networking on an international scale at the beginning of august but i think it's time we moved on to the regular parts of the show the first of which is always this week in skeptical history also known as twish This week, the 30th of June, marks the 115th anniversary of a very important event of our whole solar system, actually, not only in the history of Earth, and that is the Tunguska event. The Tunguska event is named after a river that flows through the part of Siberia, an area of about 2,150 square kilometers, or 830 square miles for those still stuck with the imperial uh, system, as opposed to the metric that the rest of the world use. That area was devastated by this Tunguska event, which is a massive blast event above the surface of the Earth, about 10 to 15 kilometers above ground, where something from outside of the Earth exploded. Was it aliens? Ooh, that's the question, and that is why it has a significant <laughs> skeptical <laughs> angle. Uh, so even in a remote place like the Tunguska area, the devastation was obvious, and a lot of people actually felt the event because it, there was a f massive fireball 
earth-shattering and buildings were shattered as well. People knocked off their feet, reportedly even a couple hundred kilometers away from the area. And some Jedis did feel a disturbance in the Force. In the Force. Well, uh, some kind of disturbance was felt and registered because seismographs all over Europe had been already in place by then. All over Europe and Siberia, actually. Seismographs did register that movement and that shattering of the earth so it's it's that shaking of the earth as a result so 80 million trees an estimated 80 million trees were burned and flattened in like a concentric pattern around the area but the problem was and this is why it became a bit of a mystery uh, from a scientific point of view that no impact crater was found and no debris either Well, we have to mention that the fact that no investigations could actually take place either for a long time after the actual event, because the first expedition to find metallic ore, because, yeah, they knew about meteorites by then, so they were hoping to find a lot of metallic ore around the area. So in 1927, the first expedition traveled to the area, but they could not find an impact crater or any kind of debris. So that became a bit of a mystery. And um, there was another thing that the really important atmospheric scientific data that, that was available was published in 1993. So a long time after that, because by then there were computer models, there were lots of uh, asteroids and comets followed around the solar system so we had a lot of information on trajectories of these uh, celestial objects so those could be used to try to assess what that was and this is why the assessment was that a stony object with about 16 meters of diameter was the one that caused the event and an estimated 20 megatons of tnt equivalent was the amount of energy uh, released in that explosion so pretty big event But then, (laughs) towards the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, a a Russian research team that was called the Tunguska Space Phenomenon Foundation, led by a certain Yuri Lubvin, stated that they had found evidence of extraterrestrial devices. The only problem with that was that Yuri Lubvin and his team were predetermined in their uh, thought that uh, it was of alien origin. The whole event was an alien situation. And um, this is how they planned the expedition, to find evidence. And apparently they found some kind of debris that was metallic in nature. So the assessment was that it could not be of other origin, but alien origin. Was it a failed navigation device? Well, not necessarily, but there is a Dutch space historian called uh, Gerd Sassen who suggested a very interesting earthly origin for these fragments that were found. Well, were reportedly found. And he said that it could be because the Soviet space program that started in the 1950s and some failed flights originating in Baikonur, Kazakhstan, flew through that area, and some of them probably fell back on the ground huh. around that area. It was Sputnik. Sputnik, yeah, probably. <laughs> Something around <laughs> that. So, yeah, we are talking about a 3,000 to 4,000 kilometers distance between that area of Siberia and Baikonur, Kazakhstan, where the center of Roscosmos was back then. And uh, it still is, actually. They are, they are, it's still the launching site for uh, Russian spacecraft. Yes, um, that is probably the case if there is anything, but it's still not 100% established that actual debris had been found. We still don't know, but we have a pretty good idea as to what might have happened and one of the reasons why we do have that uh, pretty good idea is the Chelyabinsk meteorite event because we know that there was this smaller much much smaller scale event happening in 2013 
and we all know about it. We saw the videos, we saw what happened and millions of windows were, were smashed as a result and it was a much smaller event. Mm. But it was well documented and because of that we can kind of extrapolate some of the information and and some of the things that we know about it it's it's similar to when you try to reconstruct what happened with uh, mount vesuvius when pompeii and herculaneum were were covered in ash and and debris and 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 pumice and and all that because we know a lot since then by investigating lots of um, of uh, volcanic eruptions one of them being the 1980 Mount St. Helens. So it's a similar kind of gathering information from a similar event and extrapolating it to that previous one that we we know much less about, but the result and um, the phenomena is known because the end result of the devastation is still there. Mm. So, yeah, June 30th, 1908 was... Well, that is probably the greatest in written history that has happened uh, of that kind of events. Mm. And it's probably not aliens. <laughs> oh, by the way, by the way, just to finish up, Yuri Lobvin, the, the, ex- the lead expedition leader of Tunguska Space Phenomenon, it sounds very fancy, doesn't it? Mm. He eventually came up with the idea that it was a meteor, so it was an asteroid that was supposed to hit the Earth, but the aliens deterred it last minute, in the last moment, so they basically saved us from a massive asteroid impact. Oh, but that's nice of them. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the problem with this is, scientifically speaking, it works without the involvement of the aliens as well. So, <laughs> so why <laughs> would you no want to involve... need for these outlandish theories when we know what could have done this? Yeah, yeah, but it's funny. It's fun. It's funny how he he stirred it that way. Yeah. Uh, tweak, tweaked the idea, the original idea somewhat. He's a grown up, by the way. Yeah, yeah, he's a grown up. He's a grown up. But uh, well, grown ups can believe in a lot of weird things, right? So mm-hmm. uh, that's the case with um, imaginary friends. So <laughs> on that note, I'd like to find out what's there for us this week in Pontus Pokes the Pope. Yes. Well, so we have quite a few topics this week in this episode. So I f- first I thought I would skip the poking of the Pope this week, but then something came up that I just cannot ignore. So in turning your back to the congregation news, here we go. <laughs> it appears that in 2021, there was a decision taken at the Synod to regulate how the priests should address the congregation during what is known as the, quote, Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And the Eucharist, of course, is the fancy crackers that they eat sometimes. (laughs) Uh, The decision, this revolutionary decision, was that all priests have to do it the same way. And they must first face the public, then they face the altar, and then again they turn around to address the audience face to face. So... Of course, everybody, almost everybody at least, said, okay, we'll do that then if that's what you want. However, in the south or very southwest of India, there is the Archdiocese of Ernakulam Angamalu, or something that is pronounced completely different, but that's roughly how it's spelled anyway. <laughs> and this is a big diocese. Is it Turkish? It's, no, no, Indian. Indian. So it's uh, ah, sorry, southwest sorry, sorry. of India. Yeah. So it's big and it's important and uh, they have decided to keep doing it their own way. They want to face the audience the whole time and none of this mumbling towards the altar uh, with the back against the public. They, they don't want to do that. So they've been doing that forever and they're not planning to stop now. And so, so this is really Harry Potter level uh, magic here. Do the spells work if you do it the wrong way or do you have to do it the right way? And this has now escalated to the point that Cardinal George Allencheri, don't mm-hmm. know, I don't know how to mm-hmm. pronounce it, but he's one of the Benedict's boys. He, he was appointed Cardinal by Benedict. He has mm-hmm. now instructed the diocese and insisted that they go in compliance with the new mode of celebrating the liturgy. And via the local archbishop... Andrew, and here's another one, Andrews, that's fine, Andrews, and his last name is Thathahath, Thathahath, 
I don't know. You, I will spell it out in the show Are you okay, Pontus? <laughs> I don't know. I thought I just had a stroke. But <laughs> anyway, he, the guy, however it's pronounced, he has instructed the priests that if they don't comply as of 2nd of July, they will be fired. They All of them. Out. You have to do it the right way. You cannot face the public all the time when you're doing the liturgy. You have to face them, alter and mumble a little bit in between. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, if there really is a god, and he's now yeah. looking down at them, seeing them fighting over this nonsense instead of focusing on, say, stopping the sex abuse, what is he thinking? It's it's really hilarious. But, of course, since I mentioned sex abuse, I have to say a few words about that as well. George Pell, Cardinal George Pell, we remember oh, him. Oh, not him again. <laughs> he's still dead. Don't worry, he's still dead, but he's in the news again. If people remember the brilliant Tim Minchin song, Come Home, Cardinal Pell, there is a line in that one about a body of Pells called Jerry in the song. So that Jerry is actually called Gerald Ridsdale, and he is currently serving a 39-year sentence in Australia for abusing over 70 victims over the years. So that's no laughing matter. Pell famously refused to admit knowing anything about Ridsdale's crimes, but on June 22nd, last week, Ridsdale pled guilty again to yet another abuse. Uh, this one was in uh, 1997 and 1998. And the reason I bring it up is that part of this new investigation of this new crime found it established that, yes, Pell absolutely knew what was going on. So now we know again. Of course we know. We, we know that he knew and he knew that we knew that he know, knew and he still kept refusing and uh, instead he was complicit in moving around Jerry or Ridsdale. 16 times he was uh, moved around to cover up what had happened. And each time he got a new opportunity to commit new crimes. So we knew he was lying, but now it has been established in court. And Timinchin was, of course, right when he implied that the reason that Pell wouldn't go home to testify was that he didn't want to lie in court as well. Uh, but he was lying. <laughs> Third most important person in the Vatican at one point, Cardinal Pell. Yeah, it's shocking still. Yeah. How many skeletons will, will fall out of the, the, the cupboard? It's like, I, I, I don't know. It's terrible. It, it is terrible and it should not be allowed. And, and it's the congregation. It's the congregation that should say that enough is enough. We don't want these people. And especially not as... I, I don't mind imaginary friends being, being worshipped. It's, it's your own business. But having these people be the messengers... The link between you and your imaginary friend is just even more ridiculous. They're no better, not 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 only not better than anyone else. They're worse. They are criminals. I mean, not all of them, but so many of them that we have to make sure yeah. that those people are weeded out before the, anything else happens. And but no, they, it's they, not happening. But it, it's a, they have created a perfect organization for these criminals to hide. So. Yes, of yeah. course, there are people who are sincere and they are good people in the organization. But the organization attracts the bad people because they can find a possibility to go on doing these things. Yeah, and masquerade as yeah. the good guys. And it's outrageous. Okay, that leaves us with discussing what's going on in Europe. Also, we refer to this part as the news. Yes. So, let's begin in the UK. The House of Lords. That doesn't sound too democratic, does it? I think no, it, it's most not. of us, I, I don't think we want lords above us like that, especially not <laughs> people who have been, just happen to be born by the right parents, and for that they should have some special privilege. 
But I think most of us are aware of the fact that the House of Lords is the upper house in the UK Parliament. In fact, the House of Lords can trace its roots back to the early 11th century. And uh, it has functioned in different incarnations as a check against the monarchy, or at least it started out that way, trying to make sure that the king or queen didn't get too powerful. But do we still need it? Well, it's still there. And even if the power is much reduced, there are still people there, quite a few, I should say. Hereditary membership was mostly, and I say mostly, abolished as late as in 1999. But those who sit there are largely not elected by the public at all. And they can still delay enactment of bills for up to one year, or they can send instructions back to the House of Commons so you don't want to be the common, right? <laughs> you want to. <laughs> so the lords and the commons. You can see that there's a disconnect here between the two chambers. But but they can send back instructions to the House of Commons asking them to reconsider things that they don't approve of. And it is, as I said, not a small assembly. According to Wikipedia, it currently has 778 members. It makes that the second largest legislative chamber in the world, second only to the Chinese National People's Congress. (laughs) What are they all doing there? But as if all of that wasn't bad enough, it is not just aristocracy that sits there. And I didn't realize this, but there are religiously appointed bishops there too. That's correct. 26 of them, to be exact, non-elected religious guys, and they have a vote in the UK Parliament just because they believe in, you know, space God. (laughs) Anyway, the good news, the reason I bring it up is that this is now being challenged by Humanists UK and also one of our favorite people in the world, especially also UK humanist, Sandy Tuxvik, because we Mm -hmm. love to see her on the TV. She's she's really fun. She, she's yeah. behind this as well. But they have managed to secure a so-called backbench business debate in Parliament on the 6th of July regarding this. Bishops out, I think, is their slogan. And they, this has been done in cooperation with an MP called Tommy Shepard, who is chair of the all-party parliamentary humanist group. And uh, the Humanist UK is the secretariat to that group. We'll see how this turns out. But if anything is just as bad as non-elected power, it is non-elected religious power in a country that is supposed to be a democracy. (laughs) Yeah. All right. I think we all agree that um, there are places where religions and religiously inclined mysteries and myths should not be allowed. And one of them is psychotherapy. When someone is fighting an issue, um, a psychological issue, and they go to a, a psychiatric clinic, it should be based on proper evidence and psychology as a scientific field as opposed to something that is called and often being referred to as satanic panic. Mm. We often mention this on the show. Satanic panic is lots of unsubstantiated claims made in terms of why people have uh, certain psychological issues. And the claims include that they were abused in the form of a satanic ritual abuse or SRA and this originates in the United States but apparently in Switzerland it really gained ground in the last couple of decades so much so that several investigations have been done into this and it turns out that some areas in the country are very much affected and there are at least three private psychological clinics one of them is the psychiatric center Münsingen the other one is Meiringen and the Klienia Littenheid clinic in several different areas most of them around the Bern and Turgau areas cantons I believe they are so this means that some of the therapists they do believe that satanic ritual abuse is a real thing and they have a somewhat religious background and these religious circles and even politicians and some police officers investigators 
are among the believers of satanic ritual abuse as well. So this is becoming so much of a problem that now authorities in the country seem to have developed an interest in this as well investigating now there are several cases under investigations because authorities who oversee these therapeutic centers they want to be sure that the proper scientific basis is there for these uh, therapies as opposed to some kind of a weird belief in something that is mostly religiously driven yeah we will try to keep an eye out on this uh but if someone from switzerland is already doing that we would really appreciate some kind of an update on how the situation develops we learned about this from gvp's website and uh, try to find articles in uh, english as well but very few are there to be found so i think it's a problem because psychiatrists should not base their assessments and especially not their treatment on something totally unsubstantiated yeah there might be cases sadistic ritual abuses but in most of the cases anything you can find on satanic panic is really made up it's terrible how it can actually get yeah, into I, I, these, I mean, these circles I mean, bad things can happen to certain people, and that happens, but there's no movement of satanic people who are going around systematically abusing people in the name of Satan. That is just a myth. Exactly, and it's a, it's it's basically a proper conspiracy theory that we yeah, are dealing with is. here, and there's no evidence to support that there is much to go on by. So, yeah. All right, let's stay in the German-speaking world. We seem to have a recurring theme lately on this show regarding the so-called Heilpraktiker system Aye. in Germany. So Heilpraktikers, or if you can plural it that way, I don't know. Uh, they are, of course, healers, quote-unquote, who are not medical doctors. And as such, they should not be allowed to practice anything. But there's a special license for Heilpraktiker in Germany. So the latest example of this problem or a problem with this is that there is a medical doctor in Meissen, in the Meissen district, and she has issued numerous false vaccination certificates and exemptions for face masks and, and things like that during the COVID pandemic. This doctor, she is, by the way, a real registered physician she is wrong but she is a physician but she is being investigated by the police and the heilpraktiker link is that she managed to issue false covid attestations quote unquote <sighs> by the minute with so-called collective appointments which i assume were arranged en masse where you had lots of people and she just signed all the things uh, all at once this was all done in cooperation with heilpraktikers from all parts of Germany. So she basically mass-issued these documents. This is not the first time that this lady has had clashes with the law. The 66-year-old physician considers herself a Reichsbürger. We know about the Reichsbürgers, or the Reichsburgers, <laughs> as we call them sometimes. And that is, of course, if you're not aware, they, these are so-called citizens of the Reich, uh, which is a right-wing extremist movement. And they, we're not talking about the Third Reich. We're actually talking about the Second Reich, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, they go back. It's like the Freeman of the Land movement, where no laws actually apply to you. So she has, in the past, faced charges of possession of unregistered guns as well. Although they didn't mention her name in this story, I'm pretty sure that this is the same lady that we have reported on before, and now she's at it again. And hopefully, this time, the investigations will result in some sort of, at least stop her from practicing what she's practicing. Hmm. <laughs> 
Speaking of practicing and doing your job, doing your job when you're an academic involves a lot of publication and publication in the fashion that it's correctly quoted, it's correctly attributed and everything is properly backed up by evidence. And whenever you use someone else's ideas, you have to actually name your sources. That's the correct way of publishing scientific material. Sounds right. However, in some cases, even high-profile academics seem to be uh, failing at that. There is a recent case from Latvia where a very high-profile academic, actually a member of uh, the Latvian Academy of Sciences, Maric Klavins, or I'm not sure about the proper pronunciation here, but um, he was a long-time dean of the University of Latvia and uh, also a full professor of this highly acclaimed academic organization. And uh, he seems to have being caught in plagiarism. And now a criminal case has been started to find out if there is possible fraud in the project as well as the original plagiarism claim. It turns out that a couple of years back when he was uh, leading a project, an internationally, well, EU-funded project of an international scale, he was working with a guy named uh, Dimitris Porsonovs, a PhD student at the University of Warsaw, who did research into certain algae in Sweden. And they worked together and he had shared the research data with Klavins and his team. And a couple of years later, Portsnovs realized that the same data that he had shared with them was published in a journal called Agronomy Research, and not a single mention of his name was to be found there. That's cheating. That's cheating. That's proper plagiarism. And what's even more interesting is that they actually falsified some of the data and they gave the localization of the origins of the data as being in Latvia instead of being in Sweden, where it was originally collected. So that is the other part of the allegations, which is basically fraud. Yeah, it's hard to say that that's an honest mistake. Yes. You know where you got the data. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So... This is a massive scandal. Now, the Latvian Ministry of um, Education and Science and the chairman of the University of Latvia Council has been involved as well since uh, March when this whole thing blew up. But now the proper police investigation is going on as well. So that is a new development in this. And... uh, It's unbelievable. So why would someone of that high profile do that? Is just beyond me. I don't know. (laughs) So uh, there's a lot to be revealed still about this case. But this is just to mention an example as to how not to do science. And even though someone is a high-profile researcher, this is important to say because a lot of pseudoscientists try to sell their stuff, their ideas, their weird ideas, with big names. But big names don't necessarily mean quality research, high-quality research. It could mean the same thing as we, we see here. Well, obviously, the benefit of the doubt is still there because the investigation is still ongoing. But uh, this is a big mistake. This should not be happening. (laughs) No. All right. So a short update from last week. We reported that Twitter and Elon Musk had recently Mm. quit the voluntary code of practice against misinformation for Twitter. And this was the code of practice for EU, that is. Mm Mm-hmm. We also said that EU was now implementing new rules which would be subject to huge fines for Twitter if they didn't follow it, or alternatively an outright ban for Twitter in the EU. Well, sometimes it pays off to play hardball like this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Twitter has now suddenly announced that they will comply with the tough new EU laws on fake news, Russian propaganda, and online crime. So there you go. Elon, back in line. 
Do what you're told. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. It's so good to see him comply for once. <laughs> and these are the moments when it feels good to be European. And this is where you actually see how Europe is not only a good idea <laughs> and uh, European integration is not only a good idea, it's important for our own sake, for things to get done. Mm. It can be slow. It's not always as efficient, but it's still a good thing to have. Mm. And in general, it's a good thing to have international corporations and agreements and declarations and pledges and all that. And we all applauded some of the pledges that were made in recent years. Lastly, at COP26, right? When uh, not only pledges regarding the uh, emission of levels of carbon dioxide, but also a pledge to decrease deforestation globally. However, as we discussed last week with regards to carbon dioxide emissions, namely that it still is increasing no matter what the decisions are and no matter matter what pledges there are, the same thing ha is happening with deforestation apparently. 2022 saw the greatest level of deforestation still in the last 10 years or so. So yeah, deforestation decreased for a while around 2017 then a small increase could be seen. But for us to reach the zero deforestation level by 2030, which is basically the pledge that we are talking about, we should be seeing a major drop year after year. So just to make sure, this is this is international, global. This is not just international. No, 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 no. EU deforestation mm. is not a big thing. No, uh, we are seeing. talking about mostly tropical areas. Brazil, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Bolivia, mm -hmm. Indonesia, Peru, and Colombia. These are the greatest yeah. six countries where deforestation is the biggest issue. And we have to make sure that, to, to, that we all understand that deforestation is not about carbon dioxide. And we know that tropical rainforests are not the lungs of the earth. It's not the case. But these areas with massive amounts of biomass... These are major carbon sinks, that's one thing. But on the other hand, it's just, just, it's only about and mostly about preserving biodiversity. Yeah. Because these are the most biodiverse areas on Earth. And uh, with the loss of these forests, we are losing the diversity. We are losing lots of animal and plant species. Uh, not to speak of uh, fungi as well. Mm. So this is a major ecological catastrophe that we are heading towards. Yeah, it's a mass extinction. It is a mass extinction. And uh, apparently not enough is being done about this. Now, Brazil seems to be committing more to stopping deforestation with uh, Bolsonaro being out of the picture. But in other countries, we don't see the changes that we we should be seeing. So... Why I'm saying this is because it's one thing to know what the problem is. It's one, it's one thing to, to make a decision that we are tackling this. But you have to actually do the stuff that you make a pledge to do. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Quite right. Totally different topic now. Mm -hmm. Paolo Macchiarini. Heard oh, of him? not that again, again. Again, the scandal of Paolo Macchiarini. We will never hear the last of it. So, short Just, recap for people who <laughs> have forgotten, who haven't been around maybe. Paolo Macchiarini is a surgeon and a fraud. I can say that now because of what's following later. In the period 2008 to 2011, he performed several experimental operations on patients who had lost the function of their trachea. That is the inside of the throat, which is, as anyone can understand, a very serious condition because you can't breathe. And this has been due to cancer or trauma, some injury or illness. So what he did was he said that he had developed a new method where you could replace the trachea with a plastic one. And if you cover the replacement with stem cells, it would not be rejected. So on the face of it, it sounds 
not totally implausible, maybe he's right, but what he did say was that he had successfully done this in animals, but that was a lie, we know that now, he lied, and people died as a consequence. Now, several lawsuits have been attempted, also civil ones, but they haven't resulted in anything until now. Because for a long time it looked like he would get away with it, but finally an appeal court in Sweden has not only sustained a lower court decision, but also increased the severity of the punishment. So Paolo Macchiarini has now been sentenced to two and a half years in jail for aggravated assault on three patients. So, And that's a little bit strange from a legal point of view, I, as a layperson, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know how it works, but aggravated assault is a strange way of getting to him, but uh, whatever works, works, I guess. There is still the possibility for this verdict to be appealed one more time to the Swedish Supreme Court, uh-huh. and Macarini has said through his lawyer that they will try to do so, but my understanding... Oh, of Yeah, but my understanding of the reporting in the media is that there is not a great chance that the Supreme Court will accept the case. So Mm -hmm. it seems like he's going to jail for two and a half years, and it is about time. I mean, it's been over 10 years since this scandal happened. Mm, Yeah, both scientifically and uh, morally. It's a terrible case. So, All right. So we know that Macchiarini is really, really wrong. But uh, let's see. Who's been really right as of late for a change? <laughs> yes. So uh, this is part of a theme as well, I guess, of, of from this uh, episode. We've heard earlier about EU and its campaign against misinformation on social media. Now, a specific form of misinformation or disinformation is the political ones. So we've seen many examples of this, Brexit being the most notorious, at least here in in Europe. But uh, I would say it's been a factor in every election for quite some time now, and it's only getting worse. Many countries in the EU do have laws that prohibit any news in the traditional media around the time of elections. So you cannot publish the latest surveys on which party or candidate is in the lead because there's a risk that this will influence people's way they will vote. And you don't want that. But there's no consistent rules like that that applies to, or at least are enforced, on social media. And that is now something that EU is working on. They want to get rules in place by the 2024 elections to put in place, quote, harmonized rules for high level of transparency of political advertising, end quote. So very good. This legislation will require political ads to be clearly labeled as such, and also which specific election or referendum they refer to. The name of the sponsor will have to be clear, as well as the amount spent on this ad. So it's not a ban of these ads, but a requirement for more transparency. So this is I a very good initiative. <laughs> it's, it's great initiative, but there are, of course, some problems with it. One is that you have to have a proper and clear definition of what you mean by political advertisement. Because if I say, I want you to vote for the Tory party, that, that's easy. <laughs> that's easy to identify. Yeah. But you can easily rephrase advertisements to be more subtle or more, um, well, devious or misleading than that. Yeah. And defaming someone and and trying to do some kind of political profiling by naming the enemy. It could be a gray zone. Yeah. It's very, very hard to say so. We have a big advertisement saying that this and this candidate is a big fraud and he's a liar. And I know for a fact that he was cheating when he played soccer in high school. And then you say, <laughs> label it. But by the way, this is a political advertisement paid for by this. And you know, they have to work out the details. But yeah, yeah. in the meanwhile, in any case, 
for at least trying to address this very important issue, the European Commission gets this week's prize for being really right. And I applaud that, and I think it's very well deserved. Is it the first time that they get a really right from us? I think they've gotten some really wrong awards. I'll have to look Uh-oh. it up. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> but I don't know. When the, we judge every specific action independent of who does it. Yeah. Well, speaking of people who are really wrong from different parts of Europe, this week we will have the recently introduced segment, Who's Quacking? Okay, what is this all about? Not too long ago, we made a call to our listeners. We called for names and words. The word is something that we call word of the week. Last week, we had that from uh, Latvia, uh, sent in by Lever. The other call was about people who are spreaders of misinformation, conspiracy theories, and the like, so that they do a lot of harm to society in their respective countries. And um, I'd like to share what Lever from Latvia sent us as well. So the answer to the question this week... Who's quacking? The answer is... Janis Plavic. Janis mm, Plavic. So, because there's a lot to say about him, I would like to use Leva's own words to explain who that person is. So, Janis Plavic started as a businessman selling a very special feel-good water that will increase your cell frequency and give you tons of health benefits. It used to be called memory water, but once Latvian Consumer Rights Agency did their investigations and found out it was basically a tap water, they were forced to rebrand. The water is still in market, but many shops that sold it had discontinued its sales. Due to pretty solid evidence of false advertisements, the company has been fined 15,000 euros with Janis Plavinch called political retribution. Ah, Naturally, the guy is anti-vax. Vaccines cause autism and COVID is just a global experiment. All of COVID restrictions was genocide towards people. Shorosh is being behind everything. Family can only be considered union between a man and a woman. 5G is a weapon. Climate change is fake. All this and more could be found on his free media website, which basically was translated content from InfoWars. <laughs> oh, <laughs> God. Local government has shut this website down as it was so blatantly fake news. He tried getting into parliament, even though party from which he ran got a few seats, which is a sad story itself, he didn't get in. Ah, So, says Leva, to sum it up, his water company got fined, his news site, quote-unquote news site, got shut down and people didn't elect him. All this made him last year in October announced that he's quitting his so-called activism for a while and seems to be sticking to it for now. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's, it's funny how you can subscribe to all the nonsense at once. And absolutely. You pick everything. I, I wonder how much that is just uh, a mindset or if it's a uh, deceptive you just think you you put together everything and hope that something will stick and you don't believe it i i yeah i I don't know i don't know you can never look into somebody's mind so you don't know how serious they take this themselves but um doesn't matter really because it's the same harm yeah it is and it's unbelievable how similar the situation seems to be to what other countries show. I mean, Leva sent us a link as well that we will share on the show notes with all the names that were like coming together, spreading the same kind of misinformation that was in the middle of the pandemic in December 2021. So it looks very similar to what we had, like prominent spreaders of misinformation teaming up, saying the same kind of nonsense and causing a lot of harm. So this is people listening to this, exactly why we made that call, Mm. why we wanted you 
to share this kind of knowledge with us. So please send us names, please send us information about these people, because it's exactly what we are trying to do here to give everyone an example of how not to do this and what shit is out there that local skeptics, local people are facing and we need to tackle. Because we don't know about a lot of things that are going on in countries where where English is not the first language. This is why we're doing this podcast in the first place and this is why we are so grateful to everyone for sending in that kind of information. So leave a... I would call for a great applause for, for you, your email. I ask our listeners to applaud Leva for, for sending it in. And please, others, do so as well. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of the show. But as usual, we need a quote to finish on. And this is a relatively long one from someone who unfortunately recently died, a very prominent British humanist, Jim Herrick, who wrote several books on humanism, what humanism is, and his passing was um, very sad news shared by Humanist UK. And I thought, because of this, we will remember him with a quote, and it goes like this. The widest cause of secularization may be the steady change of thinking, so that there is the expectation that reason and a consideration of cause and effect will help with explanations. Supernatural power began to be removed from explanations of the process of life or society in the 17th century, and although there may be a nod towards astrology or the crossed finger today, superstition is not seriously used in decision-making. Scientific thinking, which similarly developed in the 17th century, has been influential in bringing this change. We now see that tornadoes and earthquakes have rational explanations in terms of climatology and seismology rather than as divine punishment. Most people, when deciding whether to take a new job, embark on a divorce, or simply plan a holiday, will not seek divine guidance, but rather discuss with themselves or others the issues of cause and effect. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very optimistic, I would say. I think he's right. Yeah. I think we're going that direction. Doesn't mean that people do not consult Base their astrology decisions, yeah. when they get a divorce or get a new yeah. job. But yeah. I, I, I like the way he's portraying that we are progressing into yeah. something more rational. And I hope it continues. I agree. Mm-hmm. And not very positive note... I'd like to thank you, Pontus. Thanks a lot. For today, I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in and bearing with us (laughs) along this long episode. Uh, (laughs) But please keep tuning in. And until next week, goodbye. Hello. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesb.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Okay, so the Russian let's, let's, skeptics podcast. I don't think that's the Russian skeptic very, very good at the moment. <laughs> no, not not really. <laughs> Speaking of practicing someone's um... tennis, no, no, golf, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Disinformation. Sorry, no, it's disinformation in Swedish. Dis, 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 disinformation. It's disinformation. confusing because in Sweden, for yeah. some reason, it's disinformation. All right. In Hungarian, it's disinformation. Ah, so far, basket. Anyway.
misinformation or dirt. <laughs> <laughs>